2007, October 10th. Today is Lecture 15, The Watershed, Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. So yesterday I only got 15 minutes of yesterday's lecture before the battery died. The bunny let me down. So now I'm going to change the battery every week. Yeah, I'm still using the bunny, though, because that's who the university buys. Okay. Copernicus did not really have an original idea. It goes back to Aristarchus of Samos. But what was really original about Copernicus was his elaboration of it and making it work with the best available data of his time. The astronomical techniques of Copernicus's day were not all that much better than those that were available to Hipparchus and Ptolemy more than a thousand years before. Actually, it was Arabian astronomers who'd made most of the advances in astronomical naked eye observing technique up to that time. The problem is a lot of that information did not make its way into the West for Copernicus to use. But there was something else going on at the time of Copernicus. When Copernicus was born, the North American and South American continents did not exist in the European consciousness. Well, they existed in the consciousness of the people who lived there, but not in Europe. They didn't know about it. By the time Copernicus had died, the New World had largely been explored over most of its area, except for the deep interiors, and the products of the New World began to enter Europe, and the new knowledge and learning with it. A whole new world literally was discovered on the Earth. Imagine for a moment dessert without chocolate. Italian food without the tomato. Not a chili pepper in sight. No corn, no chewing gum, no tobacco. All of those are food products from the New World. The potato from Peru, chewing gum, uh, corn, tomatoes, and chocolate from Central America, and so on and so forth. Tobacco from the North American continent. All of these things were completely unknown, yet they're staples of the diet in Europe today. They were unknown before, at the time of Copernicus's birth. By the time of his death, they were becoming commonplaces within Europe. It was a time of tremendous change. The Protestant Revolution was sweeping through Europe and changing the old political order and the old religious order, the rise of the states. There was a time of change, and so Copernicus's idea arrived at a time when people were open to new ideas. How did the next generation carry on those ideas? What was the next step after Copernicus released his book? And that brings us to those next generation of astronomers, two in particular, Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. The basic ideas for today is we're going to introduce Tycho Brahe. He was a Danish astronomer who amassed 20 years of high-precision planetary data. He was the last and the greatest of the naked-eye pre-telescope observers. It was Tycho who had his own ideas, but in fact was to provide the essential data for a man he hired to analyze that data, the German mathematician Johannes Kepler. He was a brilliant theorist, he could not himself observe, who analyzed Tycho's data and came up with a series of laws of planetary motion that didn't just simply build on Aristotle, it crumpled them up and threw them away and started all over again with something completely new. It finished the revolution, or at least made, put the revolution to its next step of eliminating Aristotle from the equation altogether. Those three laws of motion are so important to us that we're going to enumerate them in the key ideas. The first law is that orbits are ellipses with the sun at one focus, the shape of the orbit. The second law says that a planet moves on a line so as to sweep out equal areas in equal times, the first so-called equal areas law, which governs how planetary speeds change. And the third law, which says that the period of an orbit around the sun squared is proportional to the size of the semi-major axis of its ellipse cubed. 
It tells you why a planet in a certain size orbit has the period that it does. These three laws are the keys to unlocking the secret of planetary motion and indeed for laying the foundations of all modern classical mechanics. Let's begin with Tycho Brahe. Tycho Brahe was born in the year 1546 and he lived until the very beginning of the 17th century. He was a Danish nobleman. He was in fact a member of one of the most powerful families in Denmark at the time. Denmark does not seem like such a big country to us today in the 21st century. However, at the end of the 16th century, Denmark was a major European power. It actually contained, controlled a great deal of wealth and a great deal of territory. The Brahe family was of the upper nobility. They were, one, they were in that levels of the high nobility that was just one step below royalty. In fact, among the cousins of Tycho Brahe by, by birth or by marriage, were two ambassadors who were sent to England during uh, Tycho's youth, a man by the name of Guildenstern and another one, by his cousin by the name of Rosencrantz. They made such an impression in England that later on when William Shakespeare, who knew about their coming to London, wrote his play Hamlet set in Denmark, included the characters of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It was in Brahe's family, he was a very wealthy man, he could have done anything he wanted to. Normally the path for this would be to sort of live a wild youth and then take his place in the Danish court. But Tycho was a brilliant mathematician. He was a scholar and he wanted to follow a path of scholarship which was unusual for people of his social status. He was a brilliant astronomer as it turned out and the master instrument builder in the age before Galileo and the invention of the telescope. He came in the generation just before Galileo. He admired Copernicus a great deal as a mathematician. He read in detail the De Revolutionibus. In fact, surviving among those hundred-odd copies of De Revolutionibus is Tycho's copy with Tycho's marginal notes. So we can actually get some idea of what Tycho thought as he read the book. He realized the brilliance of the mathematics, but he simply could not accept the idea of a moving Earth. He bought the basic program, however, to 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 re-examine the Ptolemaic system and try to revive the idea of Aristotelian perfection. So Tycho too thought about uniform circular motion and trying to bring back this idea of Aristotelian perfection. But his approach was going to be different. It wasn't just going to be a mathematical exercise. He was going to get better observations so as to prove that his system would probably be correct. Now what got Tycho going in astronomy was at the age of 26, after a young man coming out of college, he observed a sudden appearance of a brand new star in the sky, a Nova Stella, or for short, a Nova. It appeared in the constellation of Cassiopeia and glowed more brightly than all the stars in that familiar constellation of the northern sky before it eventually faded away and vanished. Now, in the Aristotelian view of the world, the celestial realm, the realm above the moon, was the place of ever-unchanging perfection. The motions were a perfect uniform circular motion. The stars were eternal. So the sudden appearance of a star was impossible in the celestial realm. Change of that sort had to be in what was called the sublunar realm, the realm of death and decay around the earth. Well, Tycho didn't just simply say, oh, a new star, it must be in the sublunar realm, because Aristotle says that's where change occurs. He actually set about saying, if it's in the sublunar realm, I should be able to measure a parallax for it. As I go from one side of the sky to another, as it rises in the east and sets in the west, our change in perspective should give me a parallax on that. 
and therefore I should be able to measure the distance to this new phenomenon that looks like a star in the sky. However, he couldn't measure the parallax. And what his limit on that parallax angle was so small that it actually put it at a distance beyond the moon. In fact, he was able to show by measurement that this new star must be out in the celestial realm, where Aristotle said no change could occur. Tycho was immediately struck by this. He realized this was a tremendous blow to the strict Aristotelian and Ptolemaic view of the world. It was simply wrong. It failed one of its key tests. And then he, Tycho, realized that the key to understanding what was really going on, of getting a refinement and a perfection of the system of the worlds, would require making brand new measurements with the very best instruments that could possibly be made. And he began to bend his skills. He had a mission in life to measure what the real distances and size of the cosmos were. But he still clung to the idea of a geocentric system. And if he was going to get rid of the Ptolemaic system, which was demonstrably wrong, he was going to replace it with his own Tychonic system. He saw himself as having the mission of truly replacing Ptolemy's system and the Tychonic system, and not even the Copernican system, would be the true development of the system of the world. This is a sketch from one of uh, Tycho's books of the Tychonic system. It's kind of a funny hybrid between a heliocentric and a geocentric system. The Earth is it's geocentric because the Earth is fixed in and moving at the center of the Earth. And the Moon moves around the Earth, and the Sun moves around the Earth to describe out the annual motions along the ecliptic. But the planets orbit around the Sun here only showing Mercury, Venus, and a comet that he observed later in life. Mars would have an orbit, is not sketched here, Mars would have an orbit that stretches beyond the Earth here. That's how Mars can be in opposition. So too would then Jupiter and Saturn. And then the whole system turned around the sky. He had to use the full machinery of equants, I'm sorry, of epicycles. He eliminated the equant, and he demanded uniform circular motion. It's a weird halfway hybrid. Everything else is in motion except the Earth. It's only one step to move the center to the sun and set the Earth into motion, and you've got the Copernican system. He just simply could not get away from the idea of the Earth being fixed and moving at the center of the Earth. He couldn't let go of the idea. It really had its hooks in. And he couldn't let go of the idea of uniform circular motion. But in order to get this whole machinery to work, it was extremely complicated. But it did preserve appearances. It also conformed to his preconceived notion of a fixed and unmoving center of the Earth, Earth at the center. But in order to prove this system, he didn't just stop with a philosophical and mathematical exercise. He wanted to prove that it was right. And this is where his great wealth and his connections with the Danish court came in handy. He wanted to build the greatest observatory yet built to that date, a special purpose-built place with the best instruments his money could buy, or maybe the king's money could buy. To do this, he built a place called Uraniborg, the heavenly castle on the island of Hvein. The island of Hvein is out in the Orison Straits, which is now between what is Denmark and modern Sweden. It's actually visible, it turns out, from Elsinore Castle, the site of Hamlet. Um, to give you an idea of how much juice Tycho had at the Danish court, the king gave him the island and all of the income from its inhabitants and made him lord of the island. He used that money and his own personal fortune to erect the castle, or actually a really big house, 
of Iranaborg. He designed and had throughout Europe the very best instrument builders create these instruments for him, and he refined his techniques. He was able to achieve an absolutely unprecedented angular accuracy of one to two arc minutes of measurement procedure. This is all pre-telescope. This is just with the naked eye. This is using large angular circles and the very best mechanical construction techniques of the late 16th century. And it pushed the naked eye literally to its optical physical limits of precision. This is as far as you can go. One to two minutes of arc in angle is one sixtieth of the diameter of, I'm sorry, one thirtieth of the diameter of the full moon. It's a tremendous accuracy. Think how big the moon is to your eye and think of making measurements one thirtieth of that diameter. It's unprecedented. It's now going to be the ultimate set of measurements. As a result of this, Tycho was very well known throughout Europe. Havane and the Oraniborg became the center for astronomical research during the late 16th century. This is where if you wanted to be an astronomer and you wanted to have the best data and make the best measurements, you went to Oraniborg. Now, if any of you have ever been to Denmark or Sweden, I haven't, the weather isn't so good there. So you also had to be very patient and you had to be able to wait out the bad weather. Not surprisingly, Oraniborg was a very, very cushy place. He had to be an astronomer, but he didn't have to live in poverty. This is a painting of Oraniborg. Actually, the castle has long since been torn down. These beautiful sort of spired turrets you see here, you'll notice this door is open. They mimic what are now similar to the first version of modern observatory domes. His instruments were housed within all of these outbuildings. This house was a living observatory. He had laboratories, he had smelting furnaces. His house was basically his lab. And he entertained guests lavishly. In his basement, he had the best smelting equipment and one of the largest wine cellars in northern Denmark. These are what his instruments look like. They're all naked eye instruments. Yeah, here's a, a picture of a sextant that he built. Tycho was a very good writer. He described his instruments in great detail. But the real prize was the giant mural quadrant. It measures out 90 degrees. There was a, an assistant here, or this is maybe Tycho himself, recording the data here by candlelight. Another assistant by candlelight is looking at very high-precision mechanical clocks because you have to know exactly what time it is to know where you're looking. This is a fixed instrument. And then you're measuring piece is slid along here and you sighted through a series of holes through a hole in the wall. This little business here that looks like it's really bright and lit up and the sun is shining is actually a bit of a trompe l'oeil painting of, of course, Tycho showing the architecture of the heavens. Tycho was not a man who was very humble. Um, if you ever look at carefully at Tycho's portraits, you'll always notice his nose is kind of funny shaped and got a funny color. When he was a young student uh, in college, he got into an argument with a fellow student about who was a better mathematician. Uh, apparently beer was drunk, soon swords were drawn, and the end of Tycho's nose was chopped off. Tycho had replacement noses, a wooden nose for everyday wear, and golden nose to wear when he went to court. So he was the man with the golden nose. He was a very pugnacious fellow, literally. Well, what did he do with this observatory? He first started out by mapping the sky, by mapping out the stars. He made a catalog of all the stars visible from the latitude of northern Denmark, measured out, interestingly, 777 stars to an unprecedented absolute precision of one to two arc minutes on the sky. This then provided the backdrop against which he would measure the various planetary motions, because you measure the planetary motions with respect to the fixed stars. First, you've got to establish that fixed background. 
He then proceeded to use this observatory for almost 20 years, started out with the earliest instruments to the final level of refinement, and amassed planetary observations every clear night that the planets were visible in the sky. It was a tremendous amount of data. He had all of his assistants. The astronomers who went to learn from him learned the greatest techniques of the age. One of the things he was able to observe is the Great Comet of 1577. It was one of the first observations he made when he first switched on Uraniborg, if you will. He was able to show that it did not show any parallax, so it was much further away from the moon. Before that, people thought comets were atmospheric phenomena. That Aristotle taught that comets were a phenomenon of the upper atmosphere. But not, not only did he show it was beyond the moon, but he traced out its motion with respect to the background stars and showed that it was, in fact, orbiting around the sun. A first triumph for the Tychonic system. The sun is a center of motion. And if he made the, he made the leap, then all the other planets, except the Earth, moved about the sun. And this comet was no different. It was like a, a planet that came and went, if you will. The other thing he did was he wanted to map the size of the cosmos. He wanted to prove that the motion of Mars was about the sun and in the manner that was described by his Tychonic system. And he proceeded to try to make the most intensive observations of the planet Mars. In particular, there were a number of goals of these observations. The first, and the one that he failed at, despite 20 years of effort, was to observe and measure the parallax of Mars. If you could measure the parallax of Mars, you could compute in a geocentric system the geometric distance to Mars. Once you could establish the geometric distance to Mars, you've laid down the foundation of the Tychonic system. You basically measured the first leg of the cosmos. Measuring the distance to the sun did not help because it was orbiting on a near-perfect circle. Actually, a circle with a couple of epicycles. It was Mars that was the key. He also, in order to do this measurement of parallax, your best chance of measuring parallax is when the object is as close to you as possible. And that will occur when Mars is at opposition, when Mars is high in the sky at midnight. So the time you want to measure parallax is at opposition. So every Mars opposition, which happens about every 1.2 odd years, he made intensive observations. And so he amassed a tremendous amount of data on the precise positions of Mars at every opposition for more than 20 years. He also measured the, the positions and motions and speeds of Mars at quadrature and at all places in between. He had a tremendous Mars database. And this is exceedingly important because this is going to be the data set that will unlock the secret of planetary motions. Well, Tycho didn't get along too well with the uh, folks out on the island of Hevain. He actually was kind of a mean landlord. He sucked a lot of labor and taxes out of the locals. And in the Danish system, the lowliest peasant could actually complain to the king. The old king liked Tycho, and so therefore didn't really listen to the grumbles of the peasants. But his son, Christian VII, when the old king died, Christian didn't like Tycho at all. And so the peasants' complaints gave him the pretext he needed to boot Tycho off the island of Avain, shutting down Aronaborg in the process, and essentially kicking him out of court. The new king basically, he had such a falling out with the new king, Tycho didn't take the news right, he decided to argue with the new king, Sorry, I'm the king. And that was it. Tycho had to find a new job. He left Denmark in 1597, only 20 years of work at Aronaborg. And he found, managed to make his way to the uh, court of the Holy Roman Emperor in Prague, now modern Czechoslovakia, where he became the imperial mathematician. 
Now, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor much of an empire, as the old joke goes. It was the main power in Europe at that time, other than the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church, and was just beginning to become embroiled in the Thirty Years' War, the defenestration of Prague and all that, for those of you history buffs. The, po the job of the imperial mathematicus was to cast horoscopes for the Holy Roman Emperor. That basically was his job. And hang out in court and drink and other things. So he got there in 1599 with 20 years worth of data in train, and he needed a mathematician to help him analyze those data. So he began to look around Europe for a good young mathematician who he could boss around, because he couldn't go after any of the good people because they didn't like him either. And he settled upon a young German mathematician named Johannes Kepler. This part, Germany was actually part of the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, and so Kepler came to Prague in 1600 and joined Tycho Brahe and began to work with Tycho. Tycho set as his first problem determining the motion of Mars, trying to find the parallax of Mars. But it didn't last long because in 1601, after a night of drinking a lot of beer, he apparently, uh, Tycho had contracted a, a, minor, um, a minor bladder infection a stone formed and his bladder ruptured. He died in incredible pain and he at the very last minute decided to try to will to his son his job and his data to finish his life's work. His son wanted the money but not the data but Kepler was on site. Kepler moved in very quickly. He convinced the, the Holy Roman Emperor to appoint him the Imperial Mathematicus and he inherited along with Tycho's job Tycho's 20 years of planetary data. Tycho was said to have said on his deathbed, let me not to have seemed to have died in vain because his life's work had not been complete. He didn't know at the time, but by hiring Johannes Kepler and putting Kepler in position to inherit his data, he most certainly did not die in vain. Johannes Kepler is from a slightly later generation, 1571, he lived until 1630. He was a brilliant German mathematician, and he bought into the Copernican system almost immediately. He saw the simplification possibilities of the Copernican system, and he knew right away that this was the right answer. Furthermore, Kepler was one of that new generation of people. Tycho was kind of the same, that yes, there were all these Aristotelian logic and rhetoric and all that good stuff, but you know, the universe is ruled by certain universal physical laws that these physical laws should be knowable mathematically, and the way we learn about these laws is by observing nature and inferring what those laws should be, by reading the book of nature to learn those laws. Furthermore, he also was sort of infected a bit by the Pythagorean idea of mystical harmonies. He was a mathematician. He saw the wonderful ratios of numbers and geometric form, and the idea of musical harmonies to him were a signpost, were a glimpse at the underlying order of the universe, and he was just obsessed with this. And he had an absolute genius for the analysis of data. Unfortunately, he was also nearsighted, which made it impossible for him to take his own astronomical data. He also turned out to be a little tone deaf in the end, too. So he wasn't able to have much of, a, much of an interest in, math, in uh, music, but he certainly knew a great deal about mathematics. When he inherited Tycho's data and his post as Imperial Mathematicus, which gave him a reasonably steady income, which was a good thing to have in the Thirty Years' War, when you were a Protestant at a nominally Protestant or Catholic court, it was a good thing to have. It gave him enough time and enough quiet to be able to analyze Tycho's data. 
Tycho had set Kepler originally on the problem of, loca- of analyzing the orbit of Mars, and Kepler knew that Mars was going to be the key to unlocking the secret of planetary motions. So we set in earnest in 1601 to analyzing all of the data that Tycho had taken over 20 years in the motion of Mars. It took him four years of analyzing this. This is mathematical computation with paper and pencil by hand. There are no computers. There are no mechanical calculators. This is geometry and algebra of the toughest sort in the world. And Kepler set about working on this four years of homework, if you will. In order to determine the orbit of Mars, Kepler immediately threw out the Tychonic system and adopted the Copernican system as, of course, the sun is at the center and the Earth is moving around the sun. In order, therefore, to be able to use the data on Mars taken from the perspective of Earth, he first had to trace out the circle of the Earth by using data from successive oppositions of Mars. He gave up on parallaxes. He used Mars as a way to trace out the different oppositions occur in different places to trace out the circle of the Earth. Once he knew where the circle of the Earth was, and he knew it would be centered off-center from the Sun at a slightly eccentric point, he could then use that basis of the, of the circle of the Earth to then go back to all the other data of Mars taken away from opposition and begin to steadily trace out the orbit of Mars geometrically. So first you find the Earth, and then you fit the orbit of Mars. So the first thing you do, of course, is Copernicus tells you everything is an off-center circle and everything is in uniform circular motion. So here it is, this Aristotelian ideal of uniform circular motion and circles as the perfect geometric path. In order to fit a circle, all I need to do is I need to have four points in space. Any four points I have that are on an arc, I can fit the portion of the arc to it and close the arc around. Okay. So I take the four data points, and I close the arc, and I make the circle of Mars. Now, that was where most people would stop. But Kepler, of course, wanted to use the exquisite precision of Tycho's data, and he wanted to fit another data point to it. So he took a fifth point from Mars and said, well, this is, of course, going to land right on the circle, and that will tell me what the refine, that will give him the last little tweak he needs to get the orbit of Mars just right. He put that fifth data point down, and it missed the circular arc he just drew by eight minutes of arc. It's only eight minutes of arc. It's a quarter of the diameter of the full moon. This is one of those rare moments where you can see the world about to change. Here's the picture. Here's the setup. Here's the geometry he did. This is from Kepler's book, The Astronomia Nova of 1609. It shows the kind of geometric constructions he used and the kinds of calculations he was doing in his book. And, of course, it being a Latin text of the uh, early 17th century, you have to add all these little decorations in here to basically, because you might as well, because you're paying enough for this thing. Here is the Sun, Mercury, Venus, the circle of the Earth, and finally the circle of Mars. This is the watershed moment. This is the moment the world changes. Tycho Kepler did something that no one else had done previously, or at least had not done obviously. He listened to the data. The fifth data point didn't fit. It missed the curve by eight minutes of arc. But Kepler knew that Tycho never made a mistake by eight minutes of arc, that his data were good to one to two minutes of arc. That eight minutes of arc wasn't to be a bad point to be thrown out. It was telling him something. And what it was telling him was the path of Mars was not a circle. 
it forced Kepler to back up a bit and say, the data is telling me the truth. What's wrong with my assumptions about the data? What is the true path of Mars? He realized in that moment that the data were telling him that this 3,000-year obsession with perfect circular motion was utterly false. And he set about asking, what is the shape of the orbit? And if it's not circular, that means he must also abandon the 3,000-year-old obsession with uniform circular motion, the ideal of motion in the heavens that went back to Plato. What he discovered was that Mars's orbit was not a circle, but instead it was another geometric figure, an ellipse, with the sun located at one focus. Now, Kepler was not merely refining Aristotle, he was consigning him to the dustbin of history. He published his results, together with other findings, in 1609 in a book called The New Astronomy, the Astronomia Nova. Here's an idea of what he's up against. This gives you an idea of what the circles look like. Here we have blue, the circle of the Earth, orange, the circle of Mars, and I've drawn them as perfect circles. Their center centered on the sun. The first thing Kepler did was determine that those circles were actually offset from the center. The center of the sun is now the black cross. The Mars circle is offset to one side as the orange cross. The Earth circle barely offset a little bit to the left. Then he fit the orbit with an ellipse, and what I've drawn here, as best as PowerPoint can show you, is the difference between a perfect circle, the orange curve, and the green dots, the very slight ellipse. That's what eight arc minutes really corresponds to. It's just a tiny flattening of the orbit, but that tiny flattening is everything, because this marks the time when we left the ancient world and began to enter the, the modern world, because this is the correct shape of the orbit of Mars. He discerned three laws in the motions of the planets. The first two were published in the Astronomia Nova of 1609. The third law was published five years later in a book called the Harmonici Mundi. The first law of Kepler can be stated as follows. The orbits of the planets are ellipses with the sun located at one focus. Okay, here's an ellipse. A focus is an off-center point. An ellipse has a long axis. It's basically a circle which has been squashed. This long axis is called the major axis. The ellipse is drawn by locating two points equidistant about the center called the foci. If I were to draw lines going from the focus, one, to one point, and down to the other focus, keep the sum of F1 to the planet, planet to F1 a constant, and draw the curve where that sum is constant, I will draw out an ellipse. An ellipse is not just any squashed circle. It's actually a very specific geometric construction. And the two construction points are these two foci. You would draw an ellipse, for example, by placing a piece of string of fixed length, pinning it down at two points on a line, and then sticking a pencil on the string, pulling it taut, and dragging it around to close the curve. Just the same way you draw a circle, by putting down a single string on a single point and going, drawing a simple circle. So what he said was the orbit is an ellipse with the sun located at one geometric focus, one of the generation points for the drawing of an ellipse. So it's a special geometric point. The circle, the center of the ellipse, is just some is the center of the ellipse. It's nothing special or physical about it. And the other focus is just there by symmetry. There's nothing special about this in space. So the, now we get the shape. It's not a circle anymore. It's an ellipse, and the sun is located not in the middle, 
not at some equant point, not at some eccentric point, but at a geometrically well-defined point, the focus. Remember in the Copernican system and the Ptolemaic system, you made a perfect circle for the deferent, but it didn't quite work out when it was centered, so you moved it to an arbitrary off-center eccentric point. How did you pick that eccentric point? Whatever made the answer come out right. It was totally arbitrary. But now Kepler's saying, no, no, the shape is an ellipse, and the sun isn't anywhere off-center. It's at the ex one of the exact focus points at the so-called geometric generation points. It is a geometrically special and well-defined place. It isn't arbitrary anymore. So now the orbit shape has a well-defined, not a made-up geometry. The measurement of an ellipse is measured by this semi-major axis here, which is basically the half length of the major or longest axis, the longest line you can draw through the center that intersects the two focus points. And the semi-major axis is sitting here. Now, the way I've drawn this, this focus happens to be halfway between the center and the edge, but that's purely arbitrary. So here's a special case of an ellipse. A circle is simply an ellipse where the two foci are consistent, with, are coincident with the center of the ellipse, center of the major axis, and the semi-major axis, which is called A in this nomenclature, is simply the radius of the circle. I then say that this circle has zero eccentricity, it is zero squashed, and we quantify that as E equals zero. An eccentricity of 0.5 will have the foci drawn here as the two yellow points, same semi-major axis, but now the yellow curve is the ellipse that I would generate that way. Eccentricity of 0.9, the two foci are further apart. And finally, eccentricity of 1 would be a straight line with the foci at the ends. So the ellipse can be described by two numbers. The semi-major axis gives the size. The ellipticity, or the eccentricity here, eccentricity tells me how flattened it is, how far apart the foci are, i.e., where the sun has to be located at one of these positions to have an eccentricity like that. The second law is that a line joining the sun and the planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. Remember the problem of the planets moving at different speeds, and you had to have this contrivance of wheels within wheels to do this. Kepler said, no, you don't need to do that. The, he can describe the change in speed geometrically by taking a line from the focus of the ellipse up to the planet and saying, how far does the planet move along the curve of the ellipse in one day? It sweeps out a small angle. If it's moving slow, it sweeps out a big angle if it's moving fast. And he said that the angle that swept out is the it, that the area swept out is the same. Not the angle swept out, but the area swept out by that line. Kepler's second law is a geometric description of this change in speed. It now eliminates the need for epicycles completely. Here's the picture. You take the planet, set it out there, a line from the sun to the planet, the sun at one focus, and I go 10 days later, and I sweep out this triangle in blue. On the other side of the orbit, the triangle is flatter, shorter in 10 days. The area of a triangle is one half the base times the height. So this blue area is exactly the same as this blue area. So in order for this short squat triangle to have the same area as this long thin one, you must have a wider base. So in 10 days, the planet must move very fast, closest to perihelion, closest to the sun, and move slowest 
when the triangle is longest at aphelion, furthest from the sun. A planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. That movie doesn't work, so I'm going to have to skip through it. The third law is the most surprising of all. It said that the square of a planet's orbital period is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of the orbit. That's easier to say mathematically. The period in years squared is equal to the size of the semi-major axis of the orbit, A, in astronomical units, cubed. This is the miraculous law. It says that a planet doesn't have any orbital speed. It has the orbital speed so that its period squared is equal to the size of the orbit cubed. Planets have the speed they have because the speed of their orbit knows the size of the orbit itself. In other words, he's beginning to glimpse the physical laws hiding underneath. It works very well, but to finish off here, Kepler saw in this third law a harmony. He saw a whole number ratio in the powers of the period to the size of the orbit cubed. Period squared is orbit cubed. He was glimpsing the physical laws, the deep harmonies beneath this. These are empirical laws. They only describe the motion. But Kepler knew in his heart he was actually beginning to see the underlying rules. Unfortunately for Kepler, he didn't have the mathematical language to solve the problem, nor an understanding of the physics of motion to correctly know what a force was. He had incorrect notions of how forces worked, so he never could close the loop. He couldn't see those laws. But you can imagine, you can read in Kepler's works his joy at discovering the harmonic law. Because there, hiding in that law, he realized he was glimpsing the truth. He was glimpsing the real rules underlying the motions of the planets in the heavens. Here was a man who was tone deaf, and he was the first one ever to hear the music of the spheres. But it was fall to two other people to extend this work further, the invention of the telescope and the application by Galileo Galilei, and the final elucidation of the laws of motion by Isaac Newton in the following generation. And we'll pick those stories up tomorrow. <laughs>